Maybe, maybe you've seen Carl Reiner's movie, pursuing the Oscar's thesis here. Carl Reiner's movie, Oh God, the one where George Burns plays God. George's character is a friendly, uncle-like, unassuming God. An unassuming God. Maybe that's the best kind. A fellow who wears cardigans and comfortable shoes and smokes cigars and looks like he belongs in Florida, enjoying the sunshine and remembering fondly his earlier life. He's not an intimidating God at all. He's one who's satisfied with what he's given humanity, but he's not at all certain he's pleased with what humanity has done with it. John Denver manages a grocery store, and one day in the store he runs into George Burns. He meets God. Now, it occurs to me that some of you might not know who George Burns is. Um, I saw a Far Side cartoon once that was a single uh, piece, and it, it showed a city from above set in the 22nd century, very modern, with streets up in the air and cars flying. And Way down at the end of one of the streets was the marquee of a nightclub. And on it, it said, appearing nightly, George Burns. <laughs> He's well cast. Anyway, John Denver meets God in the grocery store. And of course, John doesn't believe George Burns is God. And George sets out to convince him with a few simple displays you know, lightning and rain and things like that. These turn out to be convincing things, really, because they happen inside John's car. John starts to ask questions as a sort of ongoing test, but maybe, too, we begin to learn. He asks, was Jesus your son? And George replies, of course, Jesus was my son. But so were Confucius, the Buddha, Muhammad, and a lot of other guys who didn't get such good publicity. <laughs> Imagine that. Here's God telling us how it is. These guys did it. So can you. Everyone's got the same hold on, the same right to a perspective on things religious. Prophetic and challenging perspectives are not the sole possession of exemplars who lived long ago. What we need to seek the truth you see, is already inside us. We are not simply receptors of others' faiths. We are creators of the truth for ourselves as we see it. As this congregation's affirmation says, we are here to seek the truth in love. Whether we know it or not, our lives have been, from the beginning, greenhouses for beliefs. And our life experiences have been the stuff from which what some people call faith grows. Emerson makes this clear when he tells us that people bear beliefs as trees bear apples. A person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. I suppose the next question is, well, what is it? The growing begins when we are children. You might remember pondering the kinds of metaphysical questions that children ponder, like, why am I me? What's it like to be him or her? Why am I not him or her? 
You might remember wondering when it was that you would finally understand the reasons behind what you were hearing if you went to church. To be sure, a lot of it undoubtedly made sense, the importance of love, of charity, of truth, but it seems likely that a lot of it didn't. I say that based on some serious sociological data recovering that I did by inquiring into my own mind. I grew up in a Presbyterian church in Des Moines, Iowa, and I remember there as a child in the 1950s hearing that people believed that if one was not baptized, they would go to hell when they died. I wondered how a God could create the world and all that was in it and know that many of the people in the world lived in isolated villages or on islands and know that many of them had never heard of a man born in the Middle East many years ago and many, many miles away and still expect that all the people in the world must nonetheless be baptized or otherwise consigned without any hope to hell when they died. This kind of world was a scary one. It didn't seem fair, and it didn't seem very godlike either. And most importantly, it didn't seem to me that it was very likely. I simply refused to believe that a loving, caring God would set up things like that. I ultimately became so disenchanted that I concluded I must be an atheist. That was easy enough, of course. Now I was in my 20s. My world was the typical miasma of motion that did not accommodate much reflection on matters ephemeral. I built some walls then to keep out others' faith beliefs. I wanted my conscience to remain free, to remain unsullied. I liked the innocence I had behind the wall. Had you asked me then what I believed about God, I would have said, if there is a God, it is not one who plays favorites among all the people in the world. Of that, I am quite sure. I was sure of what I didn't believe. Learning, uh, learning about the options, building up my perspective on what I did believe, that came later. Much later yet, after that, I learned that 19th century Unitarians called this process self-culture. Of course, it goes on in this congregation all the time. And so I took a trip of sorts, and maybe perhaps you have too. In the 1970s, I began in earnest my own cultivation process. Our son was eight or nine, and for his sake, for his sake, I said, we began to attend All Souls Unitarian just down the street. John Wolfe was a senior minister. He talked about religious tolerance and how it was rooted in the inalienable right of each of us to freedom of conscience. He explained that religious freedom as the forebears of our country understood that term, had grown out of a humble recognition that each of us understands God differently and that no religion has an exclusive claim or definitive understanding on God. I saw why, as James Madison had argued so long ago, we must allow others to profess and observe the religion they believe to be of divine origin. 
We must concede that our particular religious understanding cannot be one for all times and all people. And in light of our all too human, all too limited understanding, we must extend tolerance to all religious beliefs. There is room for doubt, to be sure, but there is in the offing more than enough room for humility. Being humble in our relationship with people whose theologies are different and with those whose beliefs are different, with those who don't believe when perhaps we do, is not moral relativism. It is an acknowledgement that there is no debating the essential validity of one's faith. It acknowledges that there are rational grounds for knowledge, but that there are few, if any, limits on the supernatural. It is to accept that the universe of useful, credible beliefs, let alone the universe of possible beliefs, transcends the limits of our own personal horizons. We all believe in something. We don't all believe in the same thing. Tolerance for religion requires that religion be tolerant. Strangely enough, like Socrates, we must step outside ourselves and outside of religion to see full well the everyday utility of this humility. To say that there's no debating faith is not to say that we are left without standards. Stepping outside of faith, we run head on into the very first standard, the humility I'm recommending. Not that I think you need it. Seen in this light, humility becomes the sign of a strong faith, the sign of a belief held personally, with conviction, where we do not need to fear that our beliefs, to be worthy, must conform to, must be vouchsafed by a credentialing committee or a priesthood or a recognized religion or even by violence against those who don't share our beliefs. Because the roots of faith are personal, we can feel secure. And the neat thing is, so can everybody else. We're each entitled to formulate our own beliefs. Like Elizabeth Bishop, we need to feel free to reject conventionality. We need to feel free to, to try exchanging hats. Let me put it another way. Sit back, relax, and listen to a, a short story. And then to demonstrate the level of creative spontaneity in this congregation, I will turn to the maestro and ask him for a foreshadowing. It's about as shadowy as it can get. <laughs> when, I began, when I began at Harvard Divinity School in the fall of 1998, all the new ministerial students went through a full week of orientation. We saw the school. We saw the town. Early in the first day, we were divided into small groups, each of about eight students or so. And the groups were then set off to various seminar rooms to meet with senior Divinity School students. There we hoped, we believed, we believed 
We would learn the truth about how things would be once classes really began. I remember being with my small group, walking into the seminar room, seeing the three senior students already there, having taken, as was their evident entitlement, the long leather couch, lounging there, bantering casually, waiting for us to file in and be seated in the wood chairs. The fall air was still warm. The windows were open. A fan turned. They were seniors. They had already completed two years. I was a freshman. I had done nothing. I was, I should add, uneasy with this feeling. I was 52 years old. I wanted them to hurry up and reveal the truth of how it would be. I expected that. They were like gods to me. We were quiet. One of them spoke. He said he was a senior. He said his name was Marlon Lavinar. It meant little to me at the time. I listened raptly to what he said, nonetheless. And what he said was this. He talked to us about how we ought to participate with the other students in class and out when discussing our own faith beliefs. Not everybody had faith beliefs. But if we wanted to talk about them, this was the regimen. We should be careful not to attack the faith beliefs expressed by another's by another, if ours were different, we were encouraged to say instead something like this. I understand what you're saying. I think I see how it is for you. For me, here's how I feel. This is how it is for me. There was a lot lurking in what I had just heard. More than I knew then, he had put it just like George Burns. It took me a long time to understand all I had heard. A long time. Two years later, I was in the beginning of my senior year, and I was still working on it. One of my professors was Gordon Kaufman, who had written, among many other books, one entitled In Face of Mystery. There he espoused the thesis that humans could talk only about what humans had thought and could think about the concept of God, but we could never know the reality of God. That must remain a mystery. It will always be there up on the shelf beyond our reach. What audacity, I thought, that humans should invent the concept and then, over centuries, lapse into wars to give it, to give it what, meaning? I took Kaufman's seminar along with maybe 12 other students, and I remember realizing something there foreordained by what I had heard earlier when I was a freshman. It became supremely important. What I was learning at this school was what could be analyzed and studied and written about in a more or less methodological way, scientific even, if you will. Things such as history, philosophy, psychology, anthropology, sociology, and the like. And at a higher level, what I was learning was a methodology for academic intercourse on religion that honored absolutely that what each person believed on matters of faith was beyond disputation. 
Now, one of the more incredulous students in the seminar was dubious, however, and put it this way, straight out to the professor. Well then, what am I doing in the divinity school? I might as well be in the School of Arts and Sciences studying the humanities or social sciences. And Kaufman's response was simply to smile knowingly and look like this. Ah, the small pleasures of seeing that your point has struck home. <laughs> the suggestion that there is something beyond human knowledge might, at the very least, help us to remain humble. And having Professor Kaufman make the suggestion is, I happily admit, a powerful shove in that direction. So where do I come out? It's sort of the essence of Unitarianism that we recognize all this. That, if he, that each of us, with the self-culture and teachings we've received in our lives, ultimately create our own theology, our own belief structure, values and commitments and convictions. And of course, our culture drives them in a certain direction, to be sure. But what a tremendous legacy this belief structure is for us. It vouches for our own personal, individual entitlement to work things out for ourselves. There is great wisdom in acknowledging that we are wise enough to do that and humble enough not to let it go to our heads. When it does go to our heads, you see, then we become too proud of our tolerance. And then we become intolerant of others. Let me finish with a poem by Robert Frost, Mending Wall, a poem about two men in the spring building back a stone wall that separates their properties. Think of the wall of how the concept works two ways. At one level, it's a simile for the neighbor's ignorance, his inability in the narrator's eyes to see that the wall has no real utility. There are no cows here, as you will see, and thus no need for a wall. But the wall is also a simile for the idea that the two men's perspectives on things, mundane things like cows, but much more important things too, are unavoidably different. They are personal. This is Mending Wall by Robert Frost. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun, and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I've come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps, I mean, no one has seen them made or heard them made, but at spring mending time, we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go to each the boulders that have fallen to each. 
And some are loaves and some so nearly balls we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side, it comes to little more. There where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines. I tell him, he only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall but wants it down. I could say elves to him, but it's not elves exactly, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there bringing a stone grasp firmly by the top in each hand like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods only in the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbors. Amen. Amen.